If you would, this morning, turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Now, I warned you, remember, that we were going to be in Leviticus for a little while. Some of you need a warning. Um, Some of you don't think that uh, Leviticus, there's really anything good in Leviticus except for a bunch of blood and this sort of thing. I mean, we we read from Leviticus chapter 1. We actually read the entire chapter 1. And so, last time, and it was was pretty pretty hardcore as far as uh, sacrifices go. And... So now we want to go to the middle of the book. We're going to go to Leviticus 16. And I really want to remind you sort of just of the setup of Leviticus. As you move through Leviticus, really the first eight chapters deal with sacrifices. Then you have two chapters that deal with the priesthood. So really the first part of the book deals with how do we get to God? How do we approach God? What is God's way? It's through sacrifice and it's through the priesthood. And we talked about that last week. How, how, he, has, how he has provided that for us. Um, we've actually been in a sermon series on righteousness ever since Easter. And we'll, we'll, we'll take it all the way to Pentecost. Um, and so we've actually covered an overview of righteousness on Easter Sunday. Then we talked about righteousness that is promised in the Old Testament, prepared in the Old Testament, provided for last week, and now this morning I want to talk to you about righteousness being performed. And so notice in uh, Leviticus 16, I want to drop down. Uh, there's, there's plenty to read here, and it's, it's, it's actually better just to read the entire chapter, but for time's sake... We're going to start with verse 29 and go to the end. Notice this. And it shall be a statute to you forever, talking about the Day of Atonement, uh, that in the seventh month of the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. Let us pray. Jesus, thank You for Your Word. Now would You bless this reading of Your Word to us and our hearts by the power of Your Spirit. Would You say things that I don't verbally say this morning to the hearts of men and women. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In getting fit, it's helpful to have some kind of device to help you measure certain things. Actually, last year, one of the uh, primary gifts over Christmas was 
these, uh, were these devices, such as Fitbits and watches and whatnot, that actually measure how much you walk, how many calories you burn, and certain apps that were bought about calorie intake. So this was actually one of the, one of the you know, strongest purchases over, over Christmas, uh, probably because we end up overeating during that time. Um, but but there, there's, there's an article that I came across that I thought had a really good idea, and it was talking about having a spiritual app on your phone, not just to measure out you know, how many calories you're taking in or how many calories that you are burning, but instead, um, what he said, what he uh, suggested was have one called Share My Service, where when you actually did something, uh, like for instance, going to the prison, praying for the prison, packing things for disaster relief, uh, feeding the homeless, going to outdoor church, that it would actually uh, immediately upload to your, um, to your Facebook or whatever social media thing you had uh, to let people know as to be a witness. And then also it would add a uh, virtual jewel to your crown uh, on, on the app. Um, and another one was Map My Meditation. Anytime that you thought about the Scriptures, meditated upon the Scriptures, as the Bible tells us to do, um, it would uh, calculate the seconds and the minutes that you actually spent doing that. Um, I mean, because, you know, when, when you're tracking physical stuff, uh, you know, I, I started doing this thing where I was on a 2,000 calorie diet. That sounds like a lot. And for some of you, body weight, it, may, it might be a lot, but for me... It barely gets me through the day, I feel like, 2,000 calories. And so I'm sitting here typing in everything that went into my mouth. I'm, typing, I'm like, I'm already at a 1,400 and it's not even 12 o'clock? Um, that's not good. <laughs> you know, because when you start measuring stuff, you start realizing that what you thought was just okay actually is not okay. And you say, well, where are you going with this? Well, Leviticus is one of these measuring tools. The law in the Old Testament, is a measuring... It's, for lack of a better word, it's an app. It's an app that was designed by God so that you could evaluate, measure, put up against uh, yourself to it to see how you were doing, to see if you were walking with God, to see whether or not there was anything happening in your heart for God if you were even in the faith. And so... You know, I, I, I do that as a segue into what we're going to say today, and that is, God has actually provided us some ways to see if we're walking with Him. We don't have to guess whether or not we are a Christian. There is no guessing to this. There is confirmation. There's affirmation that we are His son. We are His daughter. We can know, and that's good news. Amen. And here in, in, in Leviticus 16, there was this one day here a year that the high priest and the high priest alone would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. So this place only only was entered to once a year and atonement was made at that place where God's very presence dwelt. Um, and and this, is, this is chapter 16. This is the climax of Leviticus. If you're reading through Leviticus, studying that book, this is the pinnacle of everything else. Now, remember, in Leviticus you have a high concentration of this term holy, holiness. And this is what the book ultimately is about. If God is holy, 
which He is, and He commands us to be holy, which He does, then this book actually shows us the way to God, in other words, God's way, and how to then walk with God. So you first have to meet God, the introduction, just like you have to meet somebody if you're going to know them. Hi, my name is Marshall. They come back with their name. You find some common ground. But if you're going to be in a relationship with someone, you have to walk where they go. You have to go in the same direction as them. I mean, if I'm out partying all weekend and Jessica's at home with the children, we're not walking the same way. We're walking apart from each other. It's not going to work. If you're in a marriage, you must walk together. And if you are going to walk with God, which is often a figure of speech that is used in the Bible, and Abraham walked with God, Enoch walked with God and was taken by God, then we're going to need to know how to do that. What We're going to need to find that common ground that we can live on, really, if you will, that holy ground that we are called to live on. Well, Leviticus, interestingly, (laughs) shows us the way. Now, it might not be your first book to go to uh, in order to find that way. But what we're doing is we're really grounding ourselves, forcing ourselves to say, okay, all the good things we have in Christ, where do they have their beginning? So the question this morning, at least one of them, is going to be this. Is the Old Testament useful? I mean, if all these things have been fulfilled, then why do we need to read the Old Testament? Why can't we just get rid of it? And I've been alluding to this uh, in previous sermons on this, this idea of righteousness. Here's another one that we need to struggle with. Does the law save you. And if it doesn't, is the law then useful at all? Shouldn't we just throw it out? Why would we need to read and reread stuff that's just a shell? Why would we not want the real thing? Is the Bible, I'm sorry, is the Old Testament a Jewish book? These are all legitimate questions that that people ask. And they ask them all the time concerning the Old Testament because we're not familiar with how the two go together. Now again, one of the first heresies in the church is to, to axe the Old, uh, Old Testament. I mean, put an axe to it, you understand, not, not the book of Acts. Um, and so, the church says, no, 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 we're, we're not going to do that. It may be difficult to reconcile the two, but it can be done. It must be done. And so, if we're going to understand this thing of righteousness, you say, what is righteousness? Is being right with God. It's being made right with God. And it's walking with God in righteousness, in the right way. So, is the Old Testament a Jewish book? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we get it from the Jews. Right? Christians don't write the Old Testament. Uh, They were not around because there were no Christ followers. Because Christ had not come. The Messiah was expected to come, yes. He was prophesied about. He was promised, but He had not made His appearing. And so, in the Old Testament, what you have is a revelatory history of the Jews. So, not a secular history, but 
revelation. Now, you say, well, what's, what's the difference here? And, and this is often a question that comes about is, is the Bible a history book? Well, the Bible contains history, and the history it contains is accurate. But it is not a uh, history book like our history books in our schools. Typically, if you're dealing with, say, for instance, Abraham Lincoln, you're going to give a chronological reading in a history book of his life, certain events in his life. You're not going to skip over large amounts of his life and only speak about, you know, a 30-minute event in his life for five chapters. That's not going to... But that's the way the Bible operates, isn't it? Abraham skips over all kinds of years of Abraham, but when he has an encounter with God that maybe lasted 30 minutes, tops, it's going to spend five chapters on it. Why? Because we're dealing with revelation. We're not dealing with just a secular understanding of history, but God's history. What was important was that conversation he had with Abraham, not all those other things. It's the same way in your life. If somebody asks you, tell me a little bit about yourself, you're not going to tell them, I hope, the insignificant things. Well, yesterday I went to the restroom about 3.30 and after that I uh, had a sandwich and it had lettuce on it. Uh, And I'm going to be thinking while you're talking, uh, you know, is this what your life is made of? This is it, just eating and drinking and the other stuff? No. You're going to tell me Certain events in your when I was five, this happened. When I was twelve, this traumatic event happened. When I was sixteen, I lost my father. When the, you're going to go through your life and you're going to prioritize. What God has given to us is a priority of revelation. We're on a need to know basis here. Just like in the military, you don't get to or even in some of your jobs, we don't get to know everything. But we get to know certain things. And so some things are left open, but what has been told to us, we need to understand clearly. And the call here is to be holy. God says, I am holy, therefore you be holy. So is is this a Jewish book? It is Jewish in the sense that God is revealing Himself to the Jews. He has elected that particular people group. Not because they were the smartest. Not because they were the best, but He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, called them to Himself. Remember at Mount Sinai? He says, I want to be your God and for you to be My people. Now notice, He first delivers them, then He gives them the law. This is a critical mistake sometimes on our part in evangelizing. We want to throw the law at people first. We want to say, hey... You have to actually, you know, we, we, we almost expect sinners not to be sinners. That's what they do. Some of them don't even know what is right. This is where the law comes in. And so, no, it's us who are bound by the covenant because we chose to love God. They are outside of the faith. We can't expect the Assyrians to act like the Israelites because they don't have the covenant upon them. But the Israelites do. And same thing with Christians. You do. To whom much has been given, much is required. You should not look like the world because you are in a new relationship. All things have been made new. Amen. So, yes, in the sense He's revealing Himself to the Jews. No, in the sense that that book, the Old Testament... 
those 39 books that make it up, are not interpreted rightly in Judaism. So what you have really is the Old Testament is shared by three religions. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They all share this this same monotheism. That's the only three, by the way, monotheistic faiths in all of the world. Every other faith ever conceived uh, is polytheistic or animistic or atheistic. Um, there is no, there are no other categories. In other words, if you really want to summarize all the world's religions, very simple. There's really just two: polytheistic, monotheistic, and there's three monotheistic ones. That's it. Everything else follows a polytheistic minds. Many gods, many gods. For those of you not familiar with poly, so is it a Jewish book? It's a Jewish interpretation. Is what they end up doing. This is why Jesus is so adamant against the Pharisees is because He knows the Pharisees are going to win out. He's not just picking on the Pharisees. The Pharisees actually were, were from all outside things, they were good people. But what was going to happen is they were going to start putting their laws on people and saying that the way to God is to climb the ladder of the law. This is not the way to God. Amen. Never was! You hear me? It never was. In the old, you say, well, hang on, hang on. In the Old Testament, they had to follow the law. Well, that's like saying, in the New Testament, we have to obey. Of course we do. But is our obedience what saves us? Absolutely not. Our obedience comes from a heart of love. Amen. And their obedience in the Old Testament came from a heart of love. You say, well, hang on, whoa, whoa, where are you getting this from? Have you ever read the prophets? The prophets will constantly say, your sacrifices stink to God. They make Him want to throw up. Why? Because you're doing all the outward stuff, but your heart hates God. You don't want to be doing this. You don't love God. You're cheating on God, Ezekiel. You're whoring around on God. Selling yourself out to all your lovers. And He's the one who has always loved you. He's the one who's always provided for you. And always been faithful. But instead you chase after them. And then come back and just do the, do the other things. Hey honey, I'm washing the dishes. Check it out. And yet you don't love her. God says, makes you want to throw up. Because the obedience to the law never saved them. God's plan is very simple, and it's so simple that we complicate it. It's always by His grace and through faith. That's it. It's by trusting in God's way and not our own way. In the Old Testament, it was through sacrifices. You might not agree with that, but that's God's way. You can take it up with Him later on. It's not my doing. His way now is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You don't have to like that. The way of the cross. But again, that's God's way. It's not my way. I didn't, who would have ever thought up something like that? That God, who is ultimate and divine and all-powerful, would be on a cross naked, being made fun of, and killed, murdered. 
Who would think that that saves anything or would accomplish anything? Doesn't sound like a human plan to me. A human plan sounds like nuking the place. That's what the disciples wanted to do, remember? God, why don't you just call fire down on these people? I mean, he was calling in some hellfire missiles. Jesus doesn't do that. His way is not our way. His ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah says. Uh, Again, those prophets interpret rightly the law. The Pharisees did not. Their interpretation of the law was to lay more laws on you so that you would never break the law. That's what Pharisaism is. If you want Pharisaism defined in a nutshell, it's not being hypocritical. All it is is adding laws so that you never break the law. Why why were they concerned with that? Because every time they broke the law, guess what happened? Bad things. Judgment came. So they started breaking the law, and here comes judgment. They lose battles. So they said, oh, we got it. We know what God wants. He doesn't want us to break His law. So we're going to put other laws around it so that we never break it. So the law says, you know, obey the Sabbath. Rest. Do no work. So what we're going to say is we're going to add to that and say, you know what, you can't go any further than 250 yards. So if you walk over 250 yards, then you're breaking the law. So they built their fences around the law because they made the law ultimate. Amen. Nothing is more ultimate than the ultimator. That's the word I just made up. Might not be a good one. I have to think about that a little bit more. Than the ultimate one. His law is not more important than the lawgiver. Any more than my dad's rules were more important than my dad. You see, we can get all caught up in all the mechanics, but salvation is a relationship. Righteousness is right living with the righteous one. It's not about mechanics and pulling this lever and this happens and doing this right and this is going to happen. It's about a relationship. And if it's about a relationship, then when you break the law, it's not just breaking the speed limit of some impersonal sign as you pass it, going 80 and a 70, but instead, it's looking into the face of someone you love, like your dad, in my instance, your husband or your wife, and them saying, I would like for you to do this, and you saying, no, I'm not. It's not this impersonal breaking of the law. It's a personal breaking of the law. God is personally offended when you go against His way. Because His way is not some impersonal law that's written in Washington on the books or in heaven on the books. His way is Jesus, a person. You're not saying... no to a book, you're saying no to, to a person. So Jesus comes and breaks their laws. It's what's so shocking in the New Testament. Now, here's the funny thing. He never breaks the law. But He breaks their laws that they put up around it. And we do the same thing, don't we? 
If we come out of alcoholism, then we start putting that, our rules to keep us away from that, which is good, by the way. One of the common themes in prison that got people there is alcohol. So there needs to be safeguards. But when we start putting those safeguards, those fences on other people and demanding that of them, we become pharisaical. If you can't watch R-rated movies, hey, that's good. More power too. I mean, that's, that's a real standard. really is. It's, and it's something that should be in your life, standards. But to place it on other people is pharisaism. No, Jesus never breaks the law, but He fulfills it. And He pushes it to the heart of the matter because it's always a matter of the heart. So when you do the sacrifices, if your heart was against God, the sacrifices are worthless. This Day of Atonement is worthless. If you go to Hebrews, you'll hear the writer, the preacher, if you will, speak about this in chapter 10. Notice what he says. For since the law, this is chapter 10, starting with verse 1, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. You say, well, why did God do that then? I mean, why did He set this whole thing up and then do away with it? Well, He didn't say He did away with it as much as He fulfilled it. There's a difference. Amen. We have to keep that difference in intention. He never abolishes the law, but He does fulfill the law. So it doesn't mean we throw it out any more than if we, you know, you lay the concrete, you do all the dirt work, you lay the concrete... And then you build the structure. You say, well, the structure's great. Let's get rid of this stupid concrete. No. The structure's built on the concrete. It's ridiculous to think you can remove the dirt work and remove the concrete, the very elemental, easy, weird stuff that you don't think even is necessary. You can't move it. It might not be as beautiful as the structure, but when you remove it, you're going to crumble the structure. We're trying to live off the structure with no foundation. Amen. And that's why a lot of times when people you know, only read and only diet from the New Testament, it's deficient. You've got to wade into the tall grass. You've got to jump into the deep end every once in a while and get your feet wet, get your body wet in the Old Testament. You must. We read the whole thing. I mean... Even in this chapter 10 of Hebrews, he's going to quote from two or three different places in the Old Testament because he knows it's his foundation. Jesus is always quoting from the Old Testament. Never the New. Hmm, go figure. Wasn't written. Paul is quoting the Old Testament, not the New. He's writing it. So if they're getting their ideas 
from the Old Testament fulfilled by Jesus Christ, then we must understand that foundation. And so I had a student last week. We were talking about the three monotheistic faiths and we've come to Islam now. And he said, so hang on, hang on. If they all share the Old Testament and they all three have different interpretations of the Old Testament, somebody's wrong. I said, you got it. Somebody's wrong. They can't all be right. In this circumstance, we don't all win. I have this shirt that I bought a long time ago. (laughs) It says, all statements are false. The above statement is false. One of these statements is true. It is a logical, you know. And yet we want to live in a society, we live in a society that thinks that stop can mean go. It can't. The nature of words are important. This term marriage is important. God's the one who designed it. Again, it's His way, not our way. It's not something we're going to be able to vote our way into or vote our way out of. We can't dismiss it. It's there. We can try to trick ourselves as we used to do when we were kids. Try to cheat the system like we used to do when we were kids. But Paul will say, stop being childish and grow up into maturity. You see, the law was given to teach us. I always relate it back to, to growing up and my dad. You know, he used to say, do not go out in the street. Never go out in the street. Because quite frankly, we would have gotten run over. There were railroad tracks beside our house too. Do not get on the railroad tracks. Never go up there and get on those railroad tracks. Now, interestingly, he doesn't tell me that anymore. When we meet now, like yesterday <laughs> in Gunnersville, he, w- he was there with me, and he wasn't telling me as I was running on the street, hey, get off the street! You're going to get killed! No, no, he wasn't telling that because I've grown up. In the same way, the law is teaching us the elementary things. But if we don't learn the elementary things, we'll never know how to conduct ourselves on the road as an adult. In the same way, we're not, the the law has a lot of stuff that we're not going to do. But we must have done, God had to do, sorry, in the beginning. He had to show them who He was, what sin is, what holiness is, who we are inside, how we can't accomplish it. How we need the Holy Spirit. And if we jump in as New Testament people and only stay there, we'll never know our great need. We'll overlook our... We'll have the key, but not know where the door is. We'll have the golden key, but not be able to unlock all the things God has for us for failure to understand what He's done in the Old Testament. So yes, somebody's wrong, and somebody's right, and Jesus is right. He is the righteous one. His way is right. In the Old Testament, you have a lot of promises. You have a lot of prophecy. 
He fulfills it all. So in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, you have creation, fall, promise, and prophecy. In the New Testament, you have incarnation. God becoming one of us. Redemption, sanctification, and the kingdom of God coming. Sure. Incarnation, redemption, as opposed to fall. Sanctification, which was his always his promise. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And prophecy, that the kingdom of God has come and will come. Now all this stuff has is grounding in the Old Testament. You say, what is the kingdom of God? Well, you've got to go back to David. Who God says, David says, I'm going to build you a house. God says, no, I'm going to build you a house and it's going to last forever. Because somebody that is your son will come and rule forever. What did they call Jesus when He came? Son of David, have mercy on me. He is the one who fulfills the Old Testament. Fulfills it, doesn't abolish it. God did not stop with Israel when He delivered them from Egypt, did He? He delivers them, then He calls them to Mount Sinai, and He says, I want you to walk with Me. But what they found out was that Egypt, even though it was behind them physically, was still in their hearts. You remember their complaints in the wilderness? We want to go back. We want to eat the boiled onions of of Egypt and this, this stupid manna that you've provided. What they found out is the same principle that we found out as Christians. When we get saved, when we are justified, when we receive His forgiveness, that's not the end we find another principle at work in us that even though we've been forgiven of our sins, sin singularly remains. That too must be cleansed. Must be purged. It's fascinating when you read Leviticus 16 again. Go back and read it this afternoon if you will or even before your discussion at small group this week. You'll find that He first washes in water. Hmm. Go figure. Baptism. The high priest. Then he kills a bull for his own sins and his family's. Then he takes two lambs. One is sacrificed as a whole burnt offering to God. The other one, he lays his hands on it and transfers the sin to that lamb and then sends it out of the community, never to be seen again. Outside of Jerusalem. So he propitiates... Big word... He placates, if you will. He satisfies God and God's justice, God's righteousness against your sin by killing that one lamb. And He expiates, He gets rid of the sin. It exits. That's what He wants to do in our life. He wants to forgive us, yes. But He also wants to drive sin out of our life. The only way to see God is to be holy. Jesus tells us this in the Beatitudes. And only those who are made holy will see God. He can do that. He can actually make you holy. I know you don't think of yourself as that. That's a good thing. But He wants to make you holy. To walk with Him. He doesn't want to just 
forgive you of your sin. He wants to purge you from it so that you don't have to do it again. So that you're not enslaved to Egypt even after you've left Egypt. He can do that. That's what atonement is all about, is being one with God, sanctified, holy. Do you believe He can do that? Do you know that power that He gives to not only be the propitiation, as Paul says, for our sins, but to get sin out of us? This is what David prays in Psalm 51, isn't it? Not only forgive me of my sins, but cleanse me from all unrighteousness. David's not praying a prayer that's not true. It is true. And it can be true for you today. Right here in this house of worship, in this very hour, if you will go to Him. He'll give you what you really wish for. Cleansing. Amen.